So tonight we're going to be in the uh, in the book of Jude, um, you know, seeking the Lord to see where He would have us tonight. Um, he just impressed upon me to go to the letter of Jude, so that's where we're going to be tonight in Jude. So if you'll turn there, <clears throat> one of the commentaries I was reading uh, by William McDonald states in his commentary that just as Luke begins Christian history with the uh, Acts of the Apostles. Jude was chosen to write the next to the last book in the Bible and appropriately is uh, is named by some the Acts of the Apostates. <clears throat> and I think as we read through this uh, letter tonight and study through it, we'll see that uh, that, that is true. I think um, in his day, right on throughout our days, um, I think nothing has changed. Um, we have plenty of apostates running around today in the church and outside of the church. But here, when we look at uh, Jude, we see a man in tune with the Holy Spirit because Jude tells us that he starts out to write about our common faith. And, and that's what he was looking to do. Then he turns and writes a different letter under the urging of the Holy Spirit, the one to encourage Christians to hold fast to the faith and be aware of the battle against the cunning attacks of the false teachers. His letter reveals the aggressive Gnostic apostates that had crept in among them, and they were sowing seeds of false doctrines among them, among the believers, leading them into immorality and sin. Now, the Gnostics were those who thought that they had great intellectual knowledge um, and spiritual things, and they would come in with their, their different doctrines. Paul had already warned in his letter to the Ephesians about the wolves that would creep in, not sparing the flock. And that from among themselves, men would rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. We'll see that's a recurring thing throughout this, that it displeases God whenever anybody draws any of his believers away from him to idol worship or any other kind of worship. Um, he doesn't care for that at all, and we'll see that. Uh, we don't really know who Jude's original audience was, the readers of his letter, because a specific church isn't mentioned there. But we kind of assume that it's Jewish believers that were around Jerusalem because he mentions um, James. Um, and if somebody was outside at that time, they probably wouldn't really know who James was. And the Old Testament uh, uh, references that Jude uses. So if if you weren't a Jewish person, you probably wouldn't be that familiar and well-versed in the Old Testament. So we're kind of assuming that that's who his audience was, uh, Jewish believers in the churches around uh, Jerusalem. As I was studying the letter I was and the, the setting that it was in, I was struck by the similarities between this letter and the letter that um, Peter writes, the second letter of Peter, especially uh, chapter 2. It talks about basically the same things, the apostates, the, the deceivers, the, uh, the, the doctrines um, that aren't ours. Um, so those things we're seeing happening throughout the church, even today, they're, they're still happening. I mean, you can look around online, on TV, you can see all kinds of things happening out there that are really far from the doctrines of God. And I wonder in, in, our, in my heart and in our hearts, you know, or am I that in tune with the Holy Spirit that, that I would be able to, if I was starting a message and, and writing something, that I would be able to just stop and go in a totally different direction? 
you know, that's that's what Jude was doing. He was he had it in mind to do this, and he was probably thinking and contemplating on on that and how to do it, and then just made the the change. So I wonder if if I would be able to do that, and something we can all contemplate: Are we really led by the Spirit in that way? Um, and let's make no mistake that we're told um, that we're in the midst of a great battle. It's been going on for centuries. It hasn't changed at all. Satan really hasn't changed his tactics at all. He's just fine-tuned them for each age because he looks at us. He's a, he's a studier of human beings. He looks at us and sees what we do, and then he just fine-tunes his ways to our ways of life. It's an age-old battle for the preservation and teaching of God's truths and his revealed doctrines. But many of us, I think, are we even aware that we're in a war, that there's a, a, an age-old battle going on? I think many of us are just oblivious to that, that we just go to work, do those things at home, come to church, you know, all those kinds of things. It's like a pattern that we do, and we're not even aware that we're in a war. So I think we need to be do, doing that, thinking about those kinds of things. Are we even studying the Word? I know that we here are, but are we doing it at home? Are others that we know doing that? Are you know, Christians as a whole, basically, that's what I'm asking. Are, are we doing that? Are we donning our armor, as Ephesians 6 says? Um, I think a lot of times that we all fall away from things like that, but under the urging of the Spirit, it brings us back. David Guzik quotes uh, someone in his commentary, speaking of this little book, saying that its neglect reflects more on the superficial, superficiality of the generation that neglects it <coughs> than the irrelevance of the burning message within the book. So if we neglect the important letter, it speaks more about us than it does of the book of Jude, because there are some, some great truths in here and a lot of reminders. You know, he goes back to the Old Testament and reminds us constantly about that. <clears throat> are we understanding of the times as the sons of Issachar were? You know, if we look around and we see things happening in the Middle East, we see things happening here, are we looking at the word to see how they line up and how close we are? You know, are we coming into the end times? Are we aware of those things? I think a lot of times we're not. We talk and we, we, we run around like chicken little with our head cut off thinking, oh, the sky is falling, all this is happening. You know, all these kinds of things. But God is in control and he's, he's watching over us. So let's start with uh, Jude. Let's look at um, the first verse, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Here we see Jude, one of the unbelieving but loving half-brothers of Jesus. And as I look at that, I think, how must that have been? You know, how could you believe the claims that he's Messiah when you grew up next to him? You know, it's one thing to have a, an older brother that's many years older that always did the right thing. You know, he, um, you know, he he loved people. He did all the right things, and you grow up next to him. You know, how could you believe that he's the, the Messiah and God? I imagine Mary never said any of those things that she cherished and pondered in her heart. You know, those things of the, um, the angelic visitation, um, that he was the son of God. There was an immaculate conception, um, that her heart would be pierced, and that he would have a redeeming death for all sin. She probably thought... Um, I'm thinking more along the lines probably is uh, Joseph, when Joseph told his dream to his father and his brothers, the, the schism that it caused there and the, the angst it caused. It probably, she probably thought it would have caused the same thing. She may have told him, but I just kind of, 
if I was the parent, I don't think I would say that. You know, it's like you, you know, your brother is God. <laughs> you know, that's kind of kind of crazy. <clears throat> you know, I don't know. You'd always be watching your 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 p's and q's there. It'd probably be good, but I think there would. I don't know what would happen there. It was just a thought. Well, after after the death and resurrection, if she didn't tell him before, she probably confirmed what they saw that that he truly was the Messiah. Um, we see in the book of Acts that they all believed his claims after after he died because they were with the apostles in the upper room praying. So thankfully they all came to their senses and uh, realized who he was. Now some 30 years later, this book we think is written between 65 AD and 68 AD. They think it was done before the uh, uh, AD 70 when, the, uh, when Jerusalem was ransacked and everything. Um, so now we see 30 years later, he understands a whole lot more because he's had the teachings of the apostles and the inspired uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit teaching him also. We see that what was important to Jude was he was totally dedicated to Christ, that he calls himself a bondservant, a slave, which was basically property of Jesus. That was what was important to him. We see, we get a, a glimpse of his heart and his humility here because we see that he didn't state that he was a brother of Jesus. He left that alone. Um, and, and not much is mentioned in the Bible. There's a lot of things that are left out. Only the key points are put in there. So he may have had some shame because of not believing his brother and the things that he said. Kind of like Peter when Peter denied Christ. You know, he was ashamed and kind of ran off and, and wept bitterly. You know, I, I imagine that maybe some of that went through the brothers also as they didn't believe all these things that, that he said. Um, so again, we don't know. Those things aren't written. Those are just you know, thoughts that I had. Now, now there was a different relationship, though. Now he saw him as Jesus, the Savior, and his Redeemer, God, which is quite a bit different than uh, his big brother. <clears throat> he calls himself the brother of James. James was well-known in the area around Jerusalem because he was a, a, one of the leaders in the church there. I think he added that so that there would be more credibility to his letter if he needed it. I think that most people knew that uh, who he was because talk kind of gets around and when you say that you're the uh, the brother of James and, and they know that, I don't think there was any other uh, anything needed. I think what he had to say they took and, and took it at face value and believed it. Now the only thing that we know about the readers is that God called them that they were called by the gospel to be his own. They were sanctified and set apart um, from sin to be his well-loved people. And they preserved, and they were preserved lovingly, kept from being defiled or harmed, keep, keeping them secure in, for eternal life in Jesus, their guardian and protector, until the time of their presentation to the king of glory. He finishes up the greeting with mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is similar to Paul's greetings that he gives, but he adds love in there, and it's a distinctively Christian love that's there, and he multiplies it to them. He, he understands uh, what they're going to be going through and that he wants to make sure that, that they have plenty to, to cover them, so he asks that that be multiplied to them. Uh, when, when we look at these things in, in mercy, peace, and love uh, be multiplied to you, um, you know, there's 
we can overcome any circumstance by looking to God, the one who in love for us overcomes all our circumstances for his good pleasure and purposes. He's not just adding them, but wants them multiplied. As I said, getting toasty in here. Did you turn that down up, Matt? Uh, well, come closer then. <laughs> okay, let's look at the, the next section, um, verses 3 and 4. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, godly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude writes to the loved ones of God. He begins telling us his intention, again, was to write about the common salvation, the common blessing that all believers enjoy. All of us enjoy the same one. It's not that it's common in that it's cheap or everybody has it. It's common that it's the only way to come to God. <clears throat> now, attacks were already happening to the faith. All believers should realize that we're in the battle. Now, how do we do battle? I think, you know, as, as Peter thought in the garden, we do battle with the sword and we whack off somebody's ear or something like that. But really, the way we do battle is we strengthen the pastor and the teacher's hands that are doing the work around us. We diligently prepare in the word and we prepare to be an unflinching witness to people around us. You know, everybody that we come in contact with, we're to be a witness for them, uh, as Jude tells us in, in verse 20. We're to pray always about everything. We're to speak out about those teachers teaching another gospel that's, that's false and, and different from ours. We're to work with a sword by our side, as Nehemiah 4.7 says. You know, but for us, the sword is, is the word of God. We must stand without compromise for the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the sufficiency of God's holy word. As believers, we must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. We should be able to, be, to teach and be patient. We contend without being contentious and testify without ruining our testimony. What is the faith that we're trying to defend, to defend and preserve? The message that was preached by the apostles. It's the word of God. That's what we're, we're holding tight to. And it was delivered once for all. So that means that it was final, it was authoritative, and it cannot be changed by false teachers that come, in along, come along thinking that they're going to add to it or, or take away from it, which is a lot of what we see today. A lot of people want the love of Christ without the other things that are attached to it because then they can do whatever they want. We just love everybody and, and do those kinds of things. So now Jude tells us the nature of the threat, that certain men pretending to be believers sneaked in unnoticed as saboteurs, intent on deceiving the believers with heretical opinions and doctrines of demons. Peter tells us the same in Second Peter 2, and Paul tells us the same in Galatians 2.4. As Jude mentions, long ago marked out for this condemnation, he does not mean that God selected these people to be damned. Remember, the Bible never teaches that God chooses, chooses some to be doomed. It never says that anywhere in the Bible. If we do what's right and we obey God and follow him and have belief and faith in him, we're saved. 
If not, if we're lost to eternal damnation, it's because of our sin and our disobedience to God. That's it. It's not because of, there's a doctrine that says that before time began, you, you, and you were marked out for eternal damnation. That's not the case. The expression teaches that condemnation of apostates was determined back in the book of Deuteronomy for the prophets that tried to lead the people astray there. <clears throat> they were to be put to death. These are not Christian brothers with different opinions. There's different churches around um, that if they're teaching the correct doctrines, they may do things different than us, and that's the whole thing of denominations, which is okay until you start changing the, the, the basic doctrines of the faith. Okay, so the, this isn't talking about them, where we don't like the church next door or up the street, those kinds of things. <clears throat> these are not, so these aren't the Christian brothers that we have differing opinions to. These are ungodly people that are depraved in their conduct and have corrupt doctrines. They twist the Christian liberties that we have so that they can be perverted and, uh, and have their sexual freedoms. You, you see that taking over the country now. That's really what's happening. So those people you look at and you would say that they're apostates, you know, the ones that are doing that. We look at everything that can't we all just get along and everybody needs to be on the same plane and, you know, we don't look at God's, we want to get rid of Christians nowadays because of you guys are bigots, you guys are all these different things that you, you don't allow people to just be who they are, that God made them. Well, God made them all the same. He made us men and women, not that we can change and do whatever we want, which is what we see happening now. Now I just heard that you know, the, the military is accepting transsexuals now. And I'm thinking, like, that must, everybody who's in there, I mean, being military, ex-military, and seeing those kinds of things, you know, it was one thing before it was don't ask, don't tell. You know, now it's like everybody can come in, and now it's transsexuals can even come in. Today I'm going to be, you know, Private Jane, and then tomorrow I'm going to be Private Jack. Or it's crazy. But where does it end? But th this is what we're looking at now. It's it's this uh, apostasy that's coming into the world, and the world likes it because we think that we're tolerant of people, which is not the case. Their doctrines deny everything about the Lord Jesus, His deity, His absolute right to rule, His being the only way of salvation. Those things kind of go on the wayside, and we add our own things in there. They think they have great spiritual knowledge, but are fools. They're tares among the wheat. They don't have to be just someone walking into the church. They're supposed pastors somewhere. They're council members on a city, on a, on a church council. They're, um, they hold positions of Christian leadership in different uh, parachurches and things like that. They're everywhere. Um, so th the idea is they can be anyone inside or outside of the church. But they all have this in common, that they're against the Christ of the Bible. That's an apostate. They have invented a liberal Christ of their, of their own. They strip him of his glory, of his majesty, of his dominion, and of his authority. And then they can do whatever they want. So that's, that's what we see happening over and over again. And eventually when they shut the Christian church down, then we'll be underground. And I imagine at that point, then we'll be flourishing like the churches overseas that you see. You know, we have it so easy here that we can do really anything we want. You know, and, and we really don't have wants as third world countries have. We can pretty much do whatever. 
we can gather to to read the word we can have outside functions and things like that well they're kind of putting the kibosh on that now because somebody that's not with us may hear and be offended because of what they hear but it's different if we walk by and we're offended by what we hear you know that's that's because we're intolerant but not them it's it's just crazy the way the world is going and and god knew this was going to happen Let's look at the next section, verses 5 through 11. And we're going to look at the the old and the new apostates. But what I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness of the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, and run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Here we see Jude gives us three Old Testament examples of apostates and how God hates their ways. Each of them rebelled against God. We see the Israelite apostates, after crying out to God, after all those hundreds of years in in slavery, they cry out to God for deliverance. He heard them, and he delivered them. And he did all these miraculous things for them to show his love for them. It's amazing to me, but, you know, as as we say, you know, people say that, well, if I was Adam or I was Eve in the garden, I wouldn't have done that. We we all would have, and we probably all would have been there right then with with all the Israelites at the time, too, because that's our our sin nature. That's what we do. But they they saw those uh, miracles that God did. He did all them to show his love. God promised them the land of Canaan, and his promise gave them all they needed to get to and take control of the land. But along the journey, they continually responded in unbelief, in doubting, and grumbling. Unbelief, doubting, and grumbling all throughout their beginning two years. I mean, that was enough where they got to Mount Sinai. They even built an altar there and worshipped an idol while Moses was up on the mountain. I mean, talk about irritating God a little bit. (laughs) He says, you'll have no other gods before me, is what he's about to tell them. He hasn't told them that yet, but it's just crazy. But but that's the way we are. And apostates are even worse than us. So they've done the idle thing. Even the Israelites reached the land. They believed the evil reports of the ten scouts and of the good report of Caleb and Joshua they didn't believe, or they didn't believe God's promise. It's amazing. You know, if God promised you that, you think you would put the faith and trust in him because of all the things that he's done. Even if you don't really trust the future, you trust him on the basis of what he's done already. But they, they feared and disbelieved, and therefore they were destroyed. There are many people like the scouts in churches today. 
They cause many to disbelieve the word of God. They cause disunity in the household of God. And that's really their mission, you know, to do to do those things, is to just destroy churches, to destroy where people are learning the word of God and going out and changing lives, not their their own and others. You know, as we go into the world, we change others' lives by the good news that we have. That's the whole reason we have a, a witness and a testimony is to do those things. And they're out to destroy those. Next we see the angelic apostasy, where they abandoned their assigned living areas, so God had them locked away in chains and darkness, awaiting their final judgment, because they rebelled against God's order. So we see a recurring theme here. We, they, we either rebel or we're in disbelief. Finally, the pagan apostasy. The people of the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities were into all kinds of sexual perversions. They included heterosexual fornication as well as homosexual lusts. The point is that they were drawing again away people from God to the cities that were doing those kinds of things. They would go in there for uh, commerce or whatever, and the next thing you know, they would see these things and would be lured in by them. The angelic apostates may have been into the same perversions. Um, you know, that's one of those things that is disputed by people. You read one commentary, another commentary, you talk to this person, that person, about the Nephilim and all that. Is that angels, sons, you know, all those things. But basically what they did was, you know, they, they think because it says in a similar manner in the verse 7 that they think that the similar manner of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they did the same thing. So... That's probably why they're locked away in chains. But again, the important point is they rebelled and they abandoned God. Jude looks at the apostates of his day. Now he shows the complete and total corruption of these false teachers to prove their, their identity with the above examples as he uses the word likewise in there. So he's using them as like a... Um, what do you call that when you hold something up and you're going to show something to it, that, whatever that is. He's using them as the model, and then he's showing how these, these guys are the same way. These are the filthy dreamers now. There were false prophets that claimed to get their teaching by revelations and dreams. Their thoughts were perverted. Again, you see a common thought here is their perversion. Um, their thoughts were perverted, and they lived in worlds of disgusting fantasies that were eventually fulfilled. There were fulfilled sexual perversions, again, drawing people, God's people, away from true worship. This sounds like they were watching late-night uh, reruns of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, going on after the sexual pleasures that they were, or right out of our newspapers today, you know, look at the things that are going on. It's, it's crazy. Um, these pretenders rejected any kind of authority, especially God's authority, like the sinning angels. They openly rejected God's word and all spiritual powers and denied Christ. They spoke evil of dignitaries, whether they were divine, angelic, or human. In verse 9, we see something found nowhere else in the Bible of the archangel uh, Michael and Satan disputing over where God buried the body of Moses. He sent Michael to bury the body, and it was buried, we, everybody believes, in, in, the, um, in the valley of Moab there. Some commentaries uh, you know, say that the, the story was passed down through the ages. Others think that it was a divine revelation from God because it's not in the Bible. It's in extra-biblical things, uh, the assumption of Moses and things like that. So we don't know where it came from, but this is the only place in the Word where it talks about it. 
And it, and it doesn't even say why the dispute was there. What were they disputing about the body for? It's, it's thought, or, or I thought, that the way you see churches and things work, if, they knew where, if he knew where the, the bones of Moses were, they would probably go build a shrine over it, and then it would draw the Israelites away, again, drawing them away, to go worship at the shrine of Moses' bones. So, you know, he's crafty in the way that he does things. But if you look, if you've ever traveled around the world, wherever there's a religious site in, in Israel, in, in Turkey, in uh, all the countries, basically, North America, not so much North America, South America, Europe, they have all these places where the churches build these shrines or these churches over these places because something famous happened there. Fatima, there's a, a place there where people go to get healed. Um, so they're all, all over the place. And, and people go there. And they don't, what they don't realize is they're going there to pray and to worship and do all those things. But they're not, they're not living for God. They're not believing God. They're not doing what God says because God says don't do these things. Because then it becomes an idol to them. And he says don't do those. <clears throat> Looking at verse 10. It says that these apostate teachers speak evil of things that they don't understand. They're egotists, so infatuated with their imagined power and their authority, imagined power and authority, that they speak evil of things that they don't even understand. They don't realize that in any society there must be authority and people under that authority. They always bucked that, especially the spiritual authorities. They're inter intellectually arrogant and spiritually ignorant. Now, there's different variations of those as you come across these people. You know, some appear very nice and, you know, they, they, they work their magic by flattering and, and deceiving people. So they become very good at it. Um, but they're ignorant because their minds are blinded by Satan, as we see in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It tells us whose minds the God of this age has blinded. And because of their unregenerate mind, they have no understanding of spiritual matters and are no smarter than beasts. So basically when they go in, they, um, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The only things they know are the natural instincts for sexual desires. And as unreasoning animals, they fulfill them. This brings about their own spiritual and moral destruction because it just goes on and on. These were fantasies that they were having and they originally had them in their dreams and then they would teach them to their uh, congregants or whatever and then they would go out and fulfill these things. Uh, and you, you look today, there's actually churches that do stuff like that. You know, there's crazy cults and things like that that are around. And God says, woe to them because they're unrepentant hearts. They store up wrath for themselves. They're doomed just as Cain and, and Balaam and Korah were. Cain is mentioned because of his disregard uh, for God. He offered his sacrifice, which a lot of people think it's because he offered a sacrifice from the fields versus a blood sacrifice of an animal. But I don't think that's it. I think that God accepted the sacrifice. The problem was that um, he did it without faith. He did it without faith in God, which is unacceptable to God. He won't accept a, a sacrifice that way. So this is a type of dead religion. And Balaam's mentioned because he disobeyed God's instructions. And he devised a plan for the king of Moab to, again, draw Israel away. Remember, to bring, bring your young women into their camp. And then the, the men of 
the Israelites will will be drawn to them and then they'll follow after your gods and everything else. So it's again drawing them away in the immorality, the idolatry and immorality. And this was for personal financial gain for him, which we see that again today. Look on the TV. You know, Kathy and I were talking about that the other day, you know, that there's so much on there that is, is about uh, finances. If you look at the, the pastors around the world who are millionaires and billionaires, have jets, their whole airport right outside their front door, all those kinds of things. Where did they get all that money? From the church. They didn't have all that money and then come into the church and decide they were going to be a pastor. So all those things, they're, they're ripping off people just like Balaam was. Many Christians would never think of denying Christ under persecution. But get the dollar amount just right, and a lot of them will. You know, it's, it's amazing because covetousness is a dangerous sin. It truly is. And it creeps up on us. We think that we're just, well, I think I just, this is worn out, I need something. But you know, maybe in the back of our minds we're keeping up with the Joneses or somebody and, and doing things like that. So we, we really have to be careful. We always have to check our hearts and, and see what's going on inside. <clears throat> Error and apostasy leave people to certain destruction. These three men came from different backgrounds. Cain was a farmer, uh, Balaam was a prophet, and Korah was a leader of Israel. You know, apostrophes never confined to, to one group of people. There are apostates in the pulpit, there are apostates in the palace, and apostates in the poorhouse, says uh, uh, David uh, Guzik quotes a guy named Coder. And that's pretty amazing that they are everywhere when you look at it. it. You know, you look through Bible history, you can see apostates everywhere. You look around today, you can see that. Let's look at verses 12 through 15. These are spots on your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up to their own shame, wandering stars, whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in ungodly ways, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The love feasts, this is like their, their version of potlucks. They would get together and bring their meal together, and then they would share communion, the cup and the bread there. And they would, they would come together there. For the Christian slaves that were in some of the other less fortunate households, they probably, this was the best meal they ever had when they got to go to one of these, you know. There's, this woman makes the best pot roast or lamb roast or whatever it is around, you know. So that's what it was for. It was to get together, to share what you had with everybody else and to, to share communion. But the apostates would show up and they would eat greedily and hungrily while other people went hungry because they came early got the best seats, ate a lot, and then the people who came late, there was nothing left for them. <clears throat> they were only concerned with themselves, and they were considered filth on the garment of the church. Second Peter 14 tells us, they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They had totally lost all moral control and could not look at a woman without seeing her as a potential adulteress. 
So this was going on and on and on through the ages. And I think nowadays it, everything's not about the sexual adultery sin and everything, but if you look around, it is pretty rampant right, wherever we look. But I think that a lot of it now is money and things like that. But from their days, that's what they were looking at. That's, that's what it was about. They called them clouds without water. These would seem to refresh people. They would refresh the land with the rain that they would deliver, but nothing was delivered. There was only dryness and death. These people were good for nothing. They were floating from one fad to another fad. The gospel lead, their gospel leads only to hell. It has nothing lively and spiritual about it. There were trees without fruit. Apostates promise a spiritual feast, but instead deliver famine, because remember, they don't understand spiritual things. If they say something is spiritual, that doesn't necessarily make it spiritual. They can say these great and wonderful things, but it doesn't make it so. The, the word tells us that, that Satan has blinded their eyes to things and that if they're not believers in Christ, then they're not regenerated. They can't understand the word and those spiritual things. So they only deliver famine. They were like the tree that was always taking the, the nourishment from the ground. It takes up the water and the minerals and, and those things, but it never gave out any fruit. And that's what these people were like. Or like raging waves. The apostates promised powerful ministries, but they're ungovernable and boisterous. And for all their noise and motion, they have nothing to show for it. <clears throat> nothing to show but the foam of their worthless shame. Isaiah 57:20 says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There's nothing um, spiritual about those things. Another thing they're, they're uh, looking at being like are wandering stars, and probably referring to a shooting star where you see like a big flash and then it goes out. There's nothing there. I think a lot of things happen. It's like a big, great ministry. Everybody's drawn to it, and then something happens, and it all dies out. And then we're looking for the next thing, you know, because that's what we look for with our itching ears. We want to see the next great thing that's happening, so we chase all these things around. It shouldn't be. So there's... You know, they, they promise enduring spiritual direction, but they only deliver brief, aimless, worthless flash. And they're worthless for navigational aids for us spiritually, how to get to heaven and everything. If you listen to them, you'll be shipwrecked. Concerning Enoch's pro prophecy, this seems to be another one of those Holy Spirit-inspired uh, sections or something that Jude got from an extra-biblical writing. Um but we'll be among those saints, among those 10,000 that come back when Christ takes us up and then brings us back with him. We'll be part of that. We'll have a partial fulfillment um, when Jesus comes back after the tribulation to, de to destroy his foes and reign as king. <clears throat> and we'll have a complete fulfillment, fulfillment after the thousand-year millennial reign. That's when the wicked, the dead, are judged. They'll be raised and judged at the great white throne. Ungodly is used here four times as a description of the apostates and their core sin of not reverencing God. Their sentence will be everlasting hell. Let's look at verses 16 through 19. These grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
how they told you that they, there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own godly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Okay, finally we get to see the portion of the book that speaks for our time today, the last times, which is, I think, where most people believe we are now. These deceivers have departed from the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles and the prophets. Everything that had to do with them, they're departing. And, and you can see that nowadays with the whole ecumenical thing where we're all getting together. Can't we just be one big church and, and be happy? Well, it's okay as long as we're all on the same page with doctrine. But the problem is that a lot of those doctrines in those churches that we want to all get together with, we don't have the same doctrine. Think of Chrislam, the new religion that we're putting Christianity and Islam together, Chrislam. How can they go together? There's no way they can go together. But but that's what we're looking at in, in these end times. They've, we've departed from the foundations that, that Jesus gave the, the apostles and they gave us and the the word of God and, and the prophets prophesied all these things coming. So today we still have the grumblers and they find fault with God and his will and his plan to accomplish his desires. This is insulting to God who gives us all things and keeps us safe until the end. He tells us that he'll hold us in his hand and no one can pluck us out. The apostates are similar to those we've already seen. Israel, the fallen angels, Sodom, Cain, Balaam, Korah. They are all worldly people seeking sinful self-satisfaction. It's like hearing the apostles of the past echoing through the ages, still arrogant and pretentious, saying all kinds of wonderful things that are deceitful words with no spiritual worth. It's the same thing over and over and over again. We think we're smart in our own eyes and, and wise, and God just laughs at us as fools. They use flattery and their attractive messages devoid of divine truth to continually draw people with itching ears. And they draw them to themselves for profit in many cases. They offer people a type of religion that they can embrace and still keep their fleshly desires. You know, so it's like you go there and what happens there stays there. You leave, you do whatever. You don't bring that back to the church. It's two separate things. So you can do one and you can do the other, which is abhorrent. These certain men knew how to use flattering words to win people over. They preyed on vulnerable people, people with high levels of guilt and anxiety, people with broken marriages, people who are lonely and tired of sin, looking for a new start, some that want to try religion for the first time. Or if you're having a hard time and you think, okay, I'm going to seek God on this. Well, if you end up with them, what are you going to get? Everything's devoid of spiritual... Um, nurturing. There's nothing there. And when you look back at all those things, the, the clouds without rain, the um, clouds without rain, the tre- trees without fruit, um, the this is a quiz. <laughs> so all those things, they're there for a good reason to show us that this is what you get when, you, when you're in true need and you go to them, there's nothing there. You fall away and then if they name the name of Christ in there, but their own Christ, and people don't know that, then Christianity gets a bad name. We get a bad name from preachers on TV, the name it and claim it, the word of faith, all those kinds of things that people are looking for. They sent in their $5, and they're looking to get $10 back. You know, they got the wallet in the mail, they, all those things. They got the holy water, they got the, 
whatever it is. It's all just a ruse to get money out of people. But people are sincerely believing and trusting in them to their to their own hurt and demise. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, they manipulate people for their own egos and their wallets. Jude's compassionate heart is warning people to remember what was said by the apostles in Second Peter 3, 1 through 3. He tells us, Beloved, I now write you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure mind by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 tells us, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. These false teachers claim to have more spiritual wisdom, but are drawn to the most corrupt things in life because they're feeding their inner ego of what they want. They get the money from the people, then they use that on lavish things from themselves. And idle hands are the devil's workshop. When you have that much money and you're not out working and taking care of people, visiting the flock and doing those things, let's do something. What are we going to do? So it's, you know, it's hard to watch. You know, you see them on TV, and especially when people are drawn to them, and people you know that are drawn to them. You know, it's hard, and especially when you try to tell them that this is not right. I remember trying to tell my brother that wrestling on TV was, Mark, that's fake. <laughs> He's like, it is not. He got really indignant. I'm like, it's not? I mean, watch the guy. He's going to get tackled, and he's just sitting there waiting for it. He's the same kind of thing with these people. If you if you truly look at them and hear what they say, it's crazy the way they. Uh, I won't get into names, but all you have to do is watch TV, a couple of church shows there, and you'll see that the majority of them. And there are some good ones on there that teach the word, but there are many that are just so fake and phony with the big blue hair and the makeup and the guy with all the diamonds on his hands and. It's just sickening. But these people are are always causing disunity in the church. So somebody listens to that on there, and then they go to hear a teaching that's truly the word of God, and they dispute that because, well, I heard a teaching by so-and-so that said it was this way, and you're teaching false doctrine over here. Well, well, show us in the word where it gets that. Well, they don't read the word. All they hear is what the people say. So they're not looking and and, and understanding the word, taking it in and growing in the faith. And it's a shame. Let's look at the next uh, three verses, 20 through 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now he tells us what we should be doing. We're to be different. 
We're not to attack them. We're to increase in our knowledge of the scriptures given to us by God through the apostles, by reading them, by studying them. As Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 32, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among those who are sanctified. Remembering that the word of God is always the answer to dangers in or out of the church. Also, we should be consistently praying in the Spirit. So we should be in the Word, studying the Word. We should be praying in the Spirit. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And in Romans 8.26 and 27, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. We pray many times for our own needs and our own desires, but the Spirit can give us right thoughts and words to pray for other things. Typically, when, when, we, when we pray, that's the first thing. It's like, okay, I need this, I want that, I have this problem, I, you know, I want to get whatever. You know, but, but it's the spirit that says, okay, okay, I got that, but let's go outside of you to the, to the surroundings around you and then further out and then further out again, kind of like first here in your Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. That's how we should be thinking as we pray. But many times we should be praying the reverse and having us last. But... That's, that's where we grow in the, in the word and in prayer. And the spirit tells us those things. Others can provide an environment conducive for spiritual growth, but no one can make another person grow in their relationship with the Lord. It's incumbent upon us ourselves. And he says, now keep yourselves. It's our responsibility to be obedient and faithful to him. Keep yourselves under the spout. Is that, I think there was a song with that, wasn't it? Keep yourself under the spout where the glory comes out of God's glory. Does anybody know that song? Jane? No? Uh, sorry. Maybe it was an old-timey Sunday school song or something. I don't know. George, you would know, right? No? No? Uh, maybe I just made that up. It was a catchy little tune. That, that's the only parts I know. But uh, Anyway. Uh, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I'm going to I'm going to YouTube it. Uh, so that's what we should be doing. We should be in obedience to God, doing the things he wants us to do, opposed to being chastened for disobedience. A lot of times my life is in the disobedient side. I, I like walk the line a lot, you know, and I think, well, yeah, I could do this, I could do you know, and then I get like spanked by him, and I was like, "Okay, I'm over here. I, I got it now." And I think we all tend to do that if we're honest with ourselves. You don't have to say anything out loud, but you know, we we find ourselves in in sin, whether it's deep sin or or it doesn't have to be deep sin. It could just be minor things, but we find ourselves there, and we need to constantly be repenting of those things and moving back in because it's our responsibility to keep ourselves there. He keeps us, but we're supposed to persevere with him. So we do that constantly looking for his appearing and for uh, our eternal resurrected life. Verses 22 to 23, the word is clear in John, um, in 2 John 10, 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, 
of, of gods, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he greets him he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. These are the apostate leaders. Okay, these are the ones leading everything. But now Jude seems to have a, a, a different uh, opinion and, and more compassion for those who are victimized by them, as, as most of us would be, because we see them falling victim. If we know the truth, we see them going through this and, and the pain that they're going through. So we have compassion on them. The sincere doubters need our mercy and patience because they've not yet reached the, the firm conclusion about Christ and eternal life. So they may be swayed by the truth that we tell them and by our witness and testimony. So we're to, to go to them and tell them these things if they come to us. Uh, think of Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door. You know, you try to reach them. You know, Mormons coming to your door. You try to reach them and tell them, you know. But most of us just close the door and go hide in the back room until they go away. And we see them going across the street. And I was like, okay, I can turn the lights on now. I can go out. But really what we should be is witnesses to them. We should know the word enough to be able to confront them. <clears throat> oh, where was I? So... Using wisdom, we approach different people in different manners by being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives us discernment. Uh, we can know when we should comfort somebody and when we should rebuke somebody by, by his leading and guiding us. That's how in touch we should be. We should be that close. You know, it shouldn't just be like, okay, you're in today. Come on, let's, let me encourage you and talk to you. It should be everybody that we come in contact with. We should be loving them and encouraging them and teaching them as much as we can in the two minutes or whatever we get. We should always have encouraging words and not uh, backbiting and things like that. Christians should not abandon a friend flirting with false teaching. We should help them through it in love. This means we continue to love them no matter how bad the person is, how misleading and terrible their doctrines are. We're not allowed to hate them or to be unconcerned about their salvation. And that's what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be the hospital we're supposed to be here to to help them and to help them understand the truths and the nuances the things that they miss the things that they were told that are errant those things are, are things we're supposed to be doing then there are the declared and committed disciples of apostasy who deserve mercy now these are declared and committed disciples of apostasy not the leaders but these are the ones that are bought into it and kind of believe everything about it they need to be confronted more strongly with the true gospel because they're closer to the to the edge of being irreconcilable that they're once they go over the edge so we still try to reach them as long as as we can but we need to this is the part where they need to be handled with much fear okay because uh, the would-be re rescuer could be contaminated or drawn into whatever it is that they're in so that's why he says to handle them with much fear, okay, because they're going to know their doctrine and they're going to try to spin it at you, whatever that may be. And so we just need to be um, led by the Spirit in those as we could be drawn into an, an immoral lifestyle or whatever it is that they're into. And when we're doing this, we can't act superior. We can't be prideful while helping them. The, the garment that they talk about before, the, the garments that, that they're wearing that, um, what was the last part of the verse? Um, 
but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Think of the, the days of old when the, the lepers okay, died or, or got new clothes or whatever. The old ones had to be burned because they were defiled by the flesh. This is the same kind of thought that's going on here, that, that we can be defiled by touching these kinds of things. The immoral life is, uh, is defiled by the flesh. This, this outward looking at these people who are perishing because they're drawn away to these uh, apostates um, is important because it demonstrates that we're not only concerned for our own salvation and our own spiritual welfare, but genuinely care about the Christians who are heading towards serious error. It's when we start to just be concerned about our little household here that we're missing the point. The point is that we're supposed to be going into all the world, and all the world just doesn't mean overseas somewhere, all the world is right outside our doors, right outside these doors, that we should be talking to people. And we, when we hear that something's not right in what they say, then we, we probe a little further, not antagonistically, but lovingly. We, we try to build the bridge so that then we can give them the gospel and tell them about the Lord. So then we have the closing. This reminds us of God's care and our destiny. Uh, verses 24 and 25. And I'm not really going to go into this, so Chris, you can come up. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, because we will stumble, we will fall, but he pricks us back up again, and presents you faultless before the presence of his holy, of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And I think, oh, one more thing, I forgot this. Since Brett brought up, brought up Stur Spurgeon the other day, I'm looking at mine this morning. I go through the same book uh, in the morning, and uh, this morning's was Proverb 133. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. The Israelites provoked the Most High by their continual idolatry, but punished them by withholding both dew and rain so that their land was visited by a sore famine. But while he did this, he took care that his own chosen ones would be secure. If all other brooks were dry, yet there will be one reserve for Elijah. When that fails, God will still preserve for him a place of sustenance. The Lord had not simply one Elijah, but he had a remnant who were hidden by fifties in a cave. Though the whole land was subject to famine, Yet these fifties in the cave were fed from Ahab's table by the faithful, God-fearing steward, Obadiah. Let us draw from this the inference that, come what may, God's people are safe. I know we have a lot of fears, especially in this time, day and age, of things that could happen to us, ISIS and all those things. But we're safe. Let convulsions shake the solid earth. Let the skies themselves be rent in two. Yet amid the wreck of worlds, the believer will be as secure as in the calmest hour of rest. If God cannot save his people under heaven, he will save them in heaven. If the world becomes too hot to hold them, then heaven will be the place of their reception and their safety. Be confident when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Let no agitation distress you, but be quiet from fear of evil. Whatever comes on the earth, you beneath the broad wings of Jehovah will be secure. 
Father, we thank you for tonight, Lord. I pray that the message that was given, Lord, was, was from you, Lord. Uh, we look forward to your great love for us, Lord, day by day that you're there. Lord, so we pray that you would be with us here tonight and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.